0: Yes, this is me, Andre. And hello, everyone. Welcome to the latest localization news that I'm recording today on Wednesday 5pm. A little bit different time than I think I did for the last past two weeks. But I was doing something else. Yesterday, today I had some meetings in morning, very good meetings about potential new courses that we might bring to you awesome, awesome makes me very happy. And here, finally, I decided to push the recording button. This is the attempt number three, because I wanted to do something tappity tappity about the intro that you have already heard. And you heard it for the first time in the previous episode. And of course, I'm referring to the new music that we edit. Uh, I'm still thinking whether I should go into the details, probably not because you're not here to hear my vlogging and how my day is going and how my foot and my right ankle is improving. You're here for the localization articles and the news that I'm going to read to you in this beautiful, amazing voice, and hopefully provide some maybe useful, maybe not so useful comments of my own. Uh, But what did I want to say? I think I still wanted to mention the music. So yeah, the reason why I didn't mention and why I didn't talk about the music last time is that I first of all recorded the last episode, and then I decided to add the music. So this was one of the music that we were considering for the regular interviews that I do for the localization podcast. I really like that, this one that you heard, but it was a little bit too crazy or the music and for the interviews that we use with other people. And so I thought that, okay, why not use it for my solo podcast, because these are a little bit weird and odd. And uh, there are no professionals here in this one. It's just me. So yes, here we are. So that is, I guess, the new um, how do you call it? Not significant, that is the new now I lost the words. That is the new that is the new that is the new not exclusive I don't know how you call that adjective which is let's say the the one that makes you recognize uh, this type of episodes So that is the the voice the music of these solo podcast. So whenever you hear that, it probably means that it's will be just me talking. And this time, I sort of set up the camera in a in a in a better way. <laughs> Somehow I figured it out. And I thought maybe this time, who knows, maybe this episode will also make its first appearance on YouTube. After a long time. This is by the way, what I actually used to do when I was recording the solo episodes before long, long time before when I started with the localization podcast. And yes, I was just recording myself and it was probably very shitty and it looked bad. Uh, So this time, I'm not sure how I'm going to make it better. I'm still thinking the reason why I sort of convinced myself of why maybe this could make sense to do it is that instead of you just looking at me full screen reading something, I can actually show you the articles as I'm reading them. And what this reminds me of is, uh, what is his name, Asmongold, uh, the very popular Twitch streamer who streams mostly WoW. Uh he does a lot of actually even he and xqc another, probably the most popular streamer right now. Uh, they both do something like this, that they check something about their games and they comment on it. So I guess it's not that different from that it's kind of like a react to something. So hopefully, this um, will be more valuable than just I don't know me. Uh, I don't know, jumping and screaming and reacting to TikTok videos. So with that being said, I think that's all that I wanted to do. for the intro. Uh, let's talk about the articles for today. And I am recording for five minutes, not that bad. So today, I'm actually going to cover only two articles. To keep it a little bit short. We did have three articles, as usually that we shared for our community. And by the way, these are articles that our community is voting on right now, currently, this week. So finally, I let's see caught up uh, with what they're doing. And the third article that was I guess a little bit difficult for me to narrate and to even read is the ultimate guide to Angular localization by Phrase. I did look at this article before I started recording, and it's very, very detailed and very practical. I would say guide to how to I don't know start localization uh, with Angular. Uh, but it has a lot of code in it. And like I mentioned, it's very practical. So you can download the files, you can change some things you can add, I don't know, tags, blah, 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 whatever it is. So that's why I will not be covering this article, but I'll still consider it for the for my pick for this week. So the two articles that we are going to talk about in this episode are number one, are translation API's and connectors the right choice for your business. This is an article by milestone localization a company I haven't heard of, but they have kind of like a nice logo. And the second one is how to manage text expansion and contraction in translation. This one is brought to you by Topan T O P P A N digital.com. Again, another company that I haven't heard before. So, I highlighted some of the things that I'm going to read to you. And especially with the first article, I might have some comments on, let's say, the choice of words, uh, similar to what I did last time with the Bitcoin, uh, not Bitcoin, the, the blockchain article. So, let's get started. Again, the article is our translation API's and connectors right choice for your business. And the article comes from milestone localization. If you have multilingual websites or and applications that are constantly updated with new content, you probably have to deal with different platforms such as cloud services, content management systems, translation management systems, etc. Um, I don't want to start spoiling the the whole story in the article right now. But um, dealing with different platforms such as cloud services, content management systems, I'm not sure what exactly is meant by cloud services. But a lot of the content management systems and translation management systems are cloud services. Anyway, Working with multilingual content across different platforms can be confusing and inefficient. This is why you need a more strategic approach that can help you not only connect all platforms that you use, but also automate and streamline the localization process, so that you can stay on top of your game in today's competitive global market. Translation API's and connectors are the perfect solutions for your multilingual projects when utilized rightfully, translation APIs and connectors can help you automate the workflow of any continuous translation and localization projects, linking all your resources. Okay, so far, so good. What are API's and how do they work? API stands for application programming interface, which is a software that connects two or more applications. So this is where I I'm going to stop. I I think I had a lot of, I don't know, small terminology, let's say issues uh, with this article. And this, this is one of them. I'm not sure if I if, if API is considered a software. To me, it's, let's say part of a software. So here it says that API is a is a software that connects two or more applications. Um, I guess maybe maybe in my definition, software is like a piece of I don't know code that is like a product, and I would say that API is part of that software, part of the application. It's not something separate because from this explanation, it seems like API is like a separate software that connects two or more applications and applications are software as well. So the first thing that comes to my mind is make.com previously Integromat, that I am using to connect a lot of things together. And that's what I would call a sort of a connector. Uh, so something that is between two applications, and on its own is a piece of software right because make is the piece of software that allows you to tap into I don't know one application and take the data from one application and plug them into another application. But on its own, let's say if you are using API of I don't know MEMSource, it's still part of mem source. It's not a separate software I would say. Let's continue. For example, each time you use an instant message app or check the weather forecast sorry or check the weather forecast on your phone, you are using APIs. These APIs connect the app you are using with another website database that provides information about the weather forecast. Here again, and what can what, what follows this this introduction about what our APIs is, is a is a nice image that basically shows to those of you who are just listening, uh, that you have a web application that through internet communicates with API, and that API communicates with web server, which then communicates with database. And this, again, is where I'm not exactly sure. And if, he, if I if I'm saying complete bullshit, uh just let me know in the comments how how you think about this but and and again, I'm doing this hopefully to i don't know maybe to give a different explanation to other people who might not know what apis are, especially after I did that whole big series of using mem source api to to connect notion uh So using notions, API and make.com and source to connect notion and source together. So how am I going to explain this to you so so not every time that you are using a web application, it has to be using an API, it can just at least from this diagram. Okay, maybe I'm entering a dangerous territory here by trying to explain to you something that you cannot see if you're just listening to the podcast. Um, But here it looks like every time you're using something that is connecting to a web server, it has to be through an API, which I don't think is true. Because API is mostly created, from what I understand, for two or more applications to communicate and talk to each other. Uh, but if you are and mostly I would say two different applications to communicate with each other. So if you have a very simple, I don't know. Um, how am I going to call this if you have a very simple website that I don't know, just shows a I don't know, let's say a very static, landing page of a of an LSP. Like right now what I'm looking at, uh, it doesn't mean that when you type in, I don't know, let's say, localizationacademy.com into your browser, that there is an API used because from what I know, it's just an HTTP request. Uh, so when you type in the URL, um, it first looks up, I believe the IP of the website, uh, it find using the DNS server, uh, it, then it contacts the server based on that IP. And then the server who takes care of that request will respond with the with the web page content in a simple way. So it doesn't mean that there is an actual API used. And in this case, what they say here is that when you're using an app, uh, so when you're using an instant messaging app, or check weather forecast on your phone, you are using API's, I don't think that always has to be true. Because they say each time you use an instant message. Um, the reason why I'm saying that not always has to be true. And why I'm not saying that it's not true, (laughs) always is that from what I know is that, for example, when you're using Netflix, Netflix is actually built from a bunch of small, like microservices. So let's say when you launch netflix.com, a lot of the parts that you see, uh, let's say something about your profile, or what you see recommended to you is provided by small microservices, which are still part of Netflix. uh, But every small thing that is used to to build the the website, like when you go to Netflix.com comes from, let's say different servers, which only provide, let's say, I don't know, information about your profile, and so on. So this is the microservice architecture, I believe. But it doesn't always have to be that for example, like if you are showing a weather forecast, so if I build an app that just contacts a server to send you the information, it doesn't mean that there has to be an API included. Anyway, I think that I completely messed up and lost your interest in this because I cannot explain it properly. Uh, And maybe it was not even worth it. Uh, Because if you know what uh, API's are, maybe you maybe you already had some doubts when I was reading the article. And if you don't know what API's are, maybe I just confused you even more, especially since you can't see the image. So I'll just continue. In other words, an API enables you to deliver your requests to the provider. And then the API returns the response to you. Okay, again, I will disagree, but let's continue. What's more, APIs allow for abstraction, which in turn enables speed and flexibility. This means that API's contain functionalities that can be reused for different purposes. In this way, a developer does not need to create code from scratch for every app. Instead, they can use the functionalities that are defined in an API and implement them for various purposes. That sounds about right. Overall, by reusing already created functionalities, developers reduce repetitive and complex processes, which in turn dramatically speed up speeds up the development process. Connectors, on the other hand, can help you eliminate eliminate repetitive tedious copy paste or import export operations. They can also contribute to a smooth translation and publishing process, which can save you time and costs without having to compromise on quality and productivity. So here again, I'm going to take the risk and try to explain to you my version of what I think are connectors. I absolutely don't agree with this definition that's presented here. Um, because connectors are basically uh, leveraging the API's. And to me, the way I understand connectors is connectors are something that you can, how you can easily, let's say, connect, uh, let's say one app to another one without going through the code through the actual API code, let's say. Uh, So for example, I don't know, like if you are. Using, I don't know, uh, let's say memsource, and you connect it straight to your WordPress through an existing connector. So, what that means is that you might just go to WordPress, and I'm not sure if this is actually existing because the most common connector for WordPress is the WPML, if I'm not mistaken. And that is the one that can connect WordPress with, I don't know, MemSource, MemoQ, or whatever you have. But it's still, the connector is still based on the APIs. So it means, let's say, in the simplified version where, I don't know, let's say MemSource would just create their own connector, you just go to WordPress and you find it as a plugin and you easily install it. And then you have some predefined options of what you want to do so you would authenticate the connector you would connect it with your memsource account so that wordpress knows what is your memsource account and then you would maybe specify i don't know which type of pages which type of posts you want to send to memsource maybe you can select them right in the wordpress and then you just click nice button and then it sends the stuff it creates projects in memsource so that to me would be connector but connectors are let's say i don't know a predefined user friendly API, I don't know packages, or extensions of of an app, which allows the two apps to communicate without you having to write any type of code. So what well, here they say that connectors, on the other hand, can help you eliminate repetitive tedious copy paste or import export export operations. The elimination of the repetitive uh, things and copy pasting and import export is still happening through API. But you just don't see it, you don't have to type the code. So going back to the article translation connectors are the ideal tool for a large amounts of files and content that are regularly updated, since they are very flexible and can be adapted as the size of your project grows. Fine, I agree. Both translation API's and connectors are ideal tools for companies that provide multilingual content constantly and utilize several platforms. Simultaneously, these tools can allow you to connect all kinds of resources, e.g. glossaries, style guides, dictionaries, machine translation, etc. to translate and publish your multilingual content as fast as possible. What are translation API's and connectors? Okay, so I guess here is the definition Uh, translation API. Oh, this is the definition for what are the translation API's not just APIs and connectors in general. Okay, a translation API is a software that allows developers to automate the translation process of their products. Translation API's can be used for both machine and human translation. Translation APIs for machine translation MT allow for quick and easy translation without having to store or manage any translation data data. The API translates a text from one language into another via an MT engine, e.g., Google Translate or a human translator. When it comes to human translation a translation API ensures that all the files are sent to the translation management system, where the respective linguist works on them, then when the translator is ready with the translation, all the files are imported into your website and app. Uh, I think when I was reading this initially, I had again, some doubts about this. But I think for now, probably going to take a pass on commenting further. Um, okay, I'm still going to say something translation APIs can be used for both machine and human translation. Okay, when it comes to okay, the definition of translation of a- a- APIs. okay, I guess it makes sense. But then I'm, I'm surprised like what actually is a translation API? Is that a term that is well known, I think there's just like an API to a certain TMS. And those API's can do things other than just be used for machine translation, or sending files into workflows. Um, one of the things that I was doing with the mem source API was just um, getting analysis. And pulling the data out of the analysis back into Notion. And I was also calculating the cost using the price lists in MemSource. So, pretty much, basically, the API of, let's say, MemSource or any TMS that you have basically, depending on how much they develop it, basically allows you to do the things that you can do manually within the TMS. You can do those things programmatically, I believe that's the right word. um, So you can automate things. And it's not just for translation. Although maybe I guess this article focuses on the translation API, because maybe I don't know. uh, When I was checking this article, I think a lot of the the way that it's structured, maybe it's mostly for SEO. So I guess if people search for translation APIs, uh, that's why it makes sense. Uh, But again, to me, it's not just like a translation API, like something specific, it's just API that's related to platforms that deal with translation, but you can do other things in them as well. Okay. Is this final thing? Maybe not. Benefits of using translation APIs translation APS can be greatly beneficial in many aspects. Here are some, and I'm just going to go through them. Smooth flow translation APS are the best way to create an efficient straightforward workflow. This will inevitably increase the overall productivity of everyone working on the project. Sure. Simple and efficient content flow. Uh it's simple. A new project comes in, and the system automatically sends the files to the people that are responsible for each part of the translation localization process. Uh, eventually, the translation, translated content is automatically published on your website. I think this is very related, very similar to the first point of smooth flow. Next one is fully automated processes. Uh, again, that's sort of related to what we had before clear overview translation API's allow you to have a clear overview of the whole localization of the whole translation project. Regardless of its size, you can easily monitor the source and target materials for any updates, recently uploaded or downloaded files or assigned tasks. Uh, I think the clear overview, I would say comes from um from, I would say, first of all, it comes from the TMS. Uh, I'm pretty sure that probably let's say I don't know if you connect WordPress to TMS. Uh, I haven't tried this. I don't know what kind of let's say reporting you get there. But you can definitely get a nice clear overview once your content and projects land in the TMS because the TMS shows you which stages are currently being work on and what has been completing and so on. Uh, But again, I don't think this is, let's say the API on its own gives you a clear overview. You get the clear overview in a nice way through either the TMS, like I already mentioned, or if you have anything on the, let's say on the CMS side, uh, then again, it's mostly because the API just sends the data in the status of the of the translation back to the CMS. So, but in a way, you can think about it, I I would rather say that if it's a connector, then the connector maybe gives you a better overview, because the connector, like I mentioned before, to me, it's something that's more user friendly and easier to do. And maybe it comes with some overview, but the API on its own, as a set of things that you can do and you can get that you can request from a certain app. I don't think that one gives you an overview. But yes, ultimately, the API leads to the clear overview. So I'm just probably talking bullshit. Next benefit less communication is required. Of course, everything is automated. there's minimal interpersonal communication involved in the overall project management process. This in turn reduces the risk of misunderstanding or error significantly. That is true. Uh, I'm just wondering if there are probably a lot of people who would prefer the interpersonal communication, although uh, working most of my life as a project manager, I definitely see this as a as a benefit, uh, because you don't need to send emails personal emails for every little small project that you send, especially if you send multiple a day. More effective project management process, having most of the project management process automated means that the project managers themselves can focus their efforts on where they are needed the most. In case there are delays or unexpected issues occur. The project manager can directly intervene and deal with the problem without having to worry about incoming projects or sending out files to translators makes sense. Final benefit, no errors or omissions. Having a fully automated process means that the risk of errors or omissions is reduced to a minimum. As a result it is highly unlikely for any errors or omissions occur. Okay, I think we have the final two, three sections of this article. So let me get to it because this is already quite so long. What kind of content can you use API's for? When it comes to content that can be utilized with translation API's, you should keep a few things in mind. Most importantly, you should have the content stored online in a content management system. CNS. APIs can work with code repositories such as GitHub and Bitbucket, Google Docs, Sheets, or cloud services such as Dropbox or Google Drive. In this way, the API can have access to all the content around the clock. If I was picky, again, here, cloud services such as Dropbox or Google Drive. And before they mention Google Docs and Sheets, I would say that maybe Google Docs and Sheets are also cloud services, probably the same way as Bitbucket is. Uh, so the cloud services that they name here, such as Dropbox, or Google, Google Drive, are cloud services, specific to, let's say, I don't know, file management. Since API's can be used for both MT and human translation, they are suitable for all kinds of materials. For more simple texts, Texts, texts <laughs> such as manuals, to more complex content from e commerce, travel, retail, and automotive sectors. Translation APIs and connectors won't work for non editable content, such as scanned documents or images, as they can't easily read the content or send back the translations to the source. APIs won't work for offline documents or any content stored in systems that don't allow connectors. So two things here, Um, scan documents or images as they can easily read the content. Uh, It doesn't work for translation API's. I'm not sure I could be talking total bullshit here. But uh, I'm pretty sure that if there is OCR, I, I don't know the details about OCR, but it's basically how you can convert, let's say a scanned document into an editable text because it recognizes the letters. If such a service exists, and it has an API, then technically, you can utilize it and you can automate it because you just, I don't know, save the scan documents somewhere on Dropbox or Google Drive, you pick them up um, through through the API and you send them to the API of the OCR, which then creates some content which then maybe you send to someone maybe to double check uh, if it's working. And if it's, if it's fine, maybe they just tick a checkbox somewhere. And then the automation continues with the uh, with the translation because you already have it in editable format. APS won't work for offline documents or any content storing systems that don't allow connectors. Again, I don't think this is technically true, uh, because, like I mentioned to me, API is their underlying base, base, and then on top of that, you build the connectors. So there are things like exactly like exactly like I told you before, what I did with Notion and Memsource, there is no connector direct between Notion and Memsource, but because both notion and Memsource have API, I am able to connect these two through a third party thing, which utilizes the API of both. So again, if if there's no support for let's say, rebuilt connectors, but there is an API, it means you should be able to do something with the files in those systems. When should you use a translation API? Setting up translation API's can be very time consuming. What's more, once you have set them up, you have to constantly manage them. This is why translation API's are set up only when number one, content is regularly updated and requires continuous localization. Okay, there is a lot of number two, there is a lot of content that can be manually updated every time, or it's too time consuming. These two points our most relevant websites, apps and software. Now, finally, uh, just quick list best practices for translation API's <clears throat> standardize the code, use a CMS, create documentation, improve your infrastructure and run tests. Okay, now this is the final thing, <laughs> who sets up and manages the API, setting up and managing a translation API is a complex process and thus should be performed by experts. That way, if you want to create a translation API for your products, you should contact a localization engineering team, or a language service provider, LSP, who can do it for you. And that's where the company does their sort of like pitch that hey, they are the ones who can do it for you. They're the experts. So that will be the end of article number one. We are recording Oh my gosh, already 36 minutes. And the second article is not that shorter. <laughs> uh, so I'll just get to it right away. Okay, second article how to manage text expansion and contraction in translation from Topon digital language. And this one, I believe I'll mostly just read because I didn't have anything that struck me. I think I I like this one. So hopefully it will be a little bit faster if I don't try to find right words to to explain my thoughts. Your best late plans for attractive graphical user interfaces, slick brochures, compelling social media posts or well optimized paid search ads can often fail when the content is localized, as the length of the translated text can increase or decrease significantly. This is referred to as text expansion, when the text is longer, or contraction, when it is shorter. It's a common position. Many brands find themselves in as text expansion and contraction often are in front of mind when they plan to translate their content for different channels and formats. Increased length, increased word length is commonly the way text expansion shows up in translation. Take English to German, for example, this language pair can often result in more space being consumed by long compound words that commonly occur in the German language. The popular conference brand TED experienced text expansion issues caused by long compound words when it localized its mobile app for the German market. The result was that parts of the words didn't even make it on screen. And here below, if you're just listening, guys, there are two screenshots side by side from a mobile app. And Uh, the one that I can explain to you, there's a TED logo. Under that is a big, let's say, a headline which says "Get Get Inspired," <clears throat> and in the German one, it says "lassen Sie," which is like "let yourself" or "get," and it's missing the the translation of the word "inspired." And then there's another subtext below it, which also ends with uh, three ellipses. I think it's ellipsis, three dots. Uh, so it's also truncated or clipped. On the other hand, there's. So uh, going through the screenshots, a very good example of how it can fuck up everything and the people just can only guess what you meant. On the other hand, there's text contraction. As you'd expect, it's the complete opposite. Translated text takes up less space. You'll often find this occurs with language pairs such as English English to Chinese or English to Korean. A common bugbear you might find with text contraction is a sudden increase in white space. While you might not think this to be an issue, the result can seem quite odd or off-putting when navigating mega menus on an e-commerce site in an East Asian language like Chinese for example. And here we have another uh, another image uh, from I guess it's a Chinese language. I guess so it looks like Chinese. Yes. Uh, And it has a lot of white space. So white space, for those of you who don't know what it means, it's basically a lot of empty space, let's say on a website. Uh, So sometimes white space is of course good. Uh, You don't want to have everything cluttered together. Uh, But I guess there can be instances like in this one where, and I don't know how to describe this to you, there is a menu on the left side. And then there's long, long nothing to the right side. And then there's some image of some lady on the far right. So let's say, I guess, I don't know, 75% of the screen is just white color with nothing in it. Okay, let's continue. Can you predict text expansion and contraction in translation? Calculating text expansion and contraction isn't an exact science, as average rates of expansion and contraction vary greatly across different language pairs and specialisms and of course, the specific text. As expected, German has a high rate of expansion when translating content from English. However, Perhaps surprisingly, languages that resulted in the highest level of text expansion also included French, Spanish and Greek. It goes to show that even with the most common European languages, keeping text expansion front of mind will be wise when localizing marketing content. While Asian languages are well known to contract characters in Chinese, Korean and Japanese are more complex than once in Latin alphabets and cannot be represented with single byte codes. To create coded character sets for such languages, the system has to use two bytes to represent each character. Characters that are encoded in this way are called double byte characters. These double byte characters take up more space in common platforms, such as Google Ads. So this also needs to be taken into consideration when localizing content for these markets. These complex characters may also require more space and a larger font size in order for the reader to comprehend them. This additional space can even take the form of vertical expansion, especially if characters are larger or more detailed in form, and I need some order. Okay, next one. Does translation specialism impact rates of expansion or contraction. (laughs) This question is, and this um, heading is very difficult for me to comprehend, but you understand what they mean by specialism very soon. In short, yes. But again, this varies depending on your content, but also the languages and specialism of your translation project. Marketing material, for example, can be highly emotive, expressive, and may contain idioms to convey various messages to to a consumer about a brand or its products. As a result, marketing translations would require a linguist with the right level of linguistic expertise to understand the variety of concepts within the marketing campaign and how to localize this effectively into the target language. Technical translation, on the other hand, requires a whole set of different skills a linguist for this type of translation is likely to be working on content from a specific scientific or technical subject area. Typically, technical translation focuses on consumer electronics, manuals or product spec sheets, which would require a linguist to have a deep understanding of the subject matter, and the specialist terms or jargon used in a specific industry. In our research, the average Expansion rate from English to German for marketing and legal content was 18%. For technical content in the same language pair, it was slightly less at 16%. For English to Spanish, on the other hand, expansion rates varied significantly. For legal content, the average expansion rate was just over 15%, marketing at 21%, and technical content at just over 26%. That's a pretty dramatic shift across different specialisms. So now you know what they mean by specialisms. Asian markets, unsurprisingly, had a higher rates of contraction after translation from English, Korean and Japanese range between 42% and 49% across legal, technical and marketing content, while Chinese contracted significantly across the three specialisms. If you're a retailer, will definitely want to take expansion and contraction rates into consideration when launching your brand into new markets, as you likely be repurposing content for platforms and formats formats, such as social media or paid search ads that have rigid character restrictions. How to be prepared for text expansion and contraction. When preparing your English content for translation, be mindful of the amount of space that the translated text might occupy and allow for the extra space in the design of your assets and user interfaces. If you know there are high expansion rates for a particular language pair, the more extra space you have, the better. The same can be said for text on images, you need to make sure that your assets have enough space to accommodate extra text resulting from text expansion, without obscuring an important part of the background image. Remember that design principles and the amount of text imagery and the relative amount of space between them can vary greatly between markets and audiences. In some Asian countries where text contraction is likely to occur, filling white space with text is a common practice. Research into the complexities of web design in different markets would be a prudent approach in this case. You also want to consider the use of abbreviations and acronyms in your content. These forms of word contraction can be tricky to translate and linguists will typically translate these using the full words, if they can translate the abbreviation acronym into the target language. As a result, more space will be needed to take in to take this into consideration. If you've only made space for the common English abbreviation FAQ, for example, you'll be frustrated when you need to find space to fit the Spanish equivalent. Preguntas frecuentes. After it's been translated, text expansion and contraction play a surprisingly important role in the planning and execution of localization projects. Whether you're localizing your e commerce site for a new market or planning a global marketing campaign for a new product or service, planning ahead with text expansion and contraction in mind will help you avoid many of the design issues that could delay your project and reduce your time to market. And then at the end, we have some infographic, which basically uh, summarizes the things that I just talked to you about. So that is the end of article number two. The only thing when I was reading this is I'm wondering how what is let's say the best practice when it comes to designing things. Since for one set of languages, you need to think that you will have to accommodate more characters. Uh, then you have in English because the translation will be lengthier. While on the other other hand, if you translate the very same content and the very same layout into Asian languages, then you will have less space needed. So I'm not sure I still think at least from my very limited experience from from a few clients. I still think that uh, there's only let's say one source design, and then it's up to the DTP guys, uh, the localization DTP people, to make sure that the layout looks good for both types of languages, whether they are expanding or contracting. But I'm still thinking whether maybe I don't know the source people, so from the from the product team, whether they should design I don't know two versions one that is specifically focused on languages that might expand and one that would be focused on languages that might contract. Because I think that the source layouts would be slightly different. Uh, if you only consider that the text might expand or only if you consider that the text might shrink a little bit. So that's my <laughs> final thought about this. I'm not sure if it makes sense, or if it's a viable thing. Maybe one day I'll get to explore that thought once we start creating something uh, for localization. But anyway, it is going to be 50 minutes right exactly at this point that I've been recording. So I would like to thank you for listening or possibly watching on YouTube. I see you there. And one thing that I want to tell you is that I discovered this feature, especially for those of you who are listening on Spotify. And what I am allowed to do is that I can create a poll for each episode. So I'm going to use this uh, opportunity, I even did it last time. And I added the articles that I covered in the last episode for you to actually vote on. So I'm going to do that. Today as well. So this time we're basically going to have two articles to compete against. Now, final thing, if I had to, and I'm going to do that, if I had to pick uh, between these two articles, I would definitely pick the second one. I think it was more interesting. It was uh, full of data. I like the examples of the of the TED, and then we had that Chinese e-commerce screenshot with a lot of whoops, white space. And then we had some data. I don't know how many, let's say, uh, how the averages for let's say how much on average, the German translation expands. Uh, what how, how how big the data sample was to come up with average, but um, it looks good. Uh, and even the, the infographic looks good. But here's the plot twist. (laughs) If I had to pick among the three articles and the third one being the ultimate guide to angular localization by phrase, uh, I'm actually going to vote for this one, even though unfortunately, I, I don't have a way how I can cover this article and it would probably take one more hour. I don't want to record for two hours. Because as you can hear from my voice, it's already too much for me. Uh, just to talk for fifty minutes, so between the two articles that I shared with you, that I read because that's all I can do, uh, the one about text expansion and contraction, I I like that one more definitely. But among these three, I'm going to cast my vote for this week for phrase again, I would have to say because we had already one other article from phrase which was about I believe software localization, and they won that week's poll. So I believe I said everything that I wanted. So once again, thank you for sticking with me. Until this point, if by any chance, you got here. Um, say hello to me or something. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, you're, 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 you're good. You're, you're cool for uh, staying for so long. So, yeah, um, as you know, I usually don't know how to end these things. I, I believe I would keep talking if I had something important to say, but I don't have anything important to say. So, that's it. That's the episode, I think, is it number 11 uh, of the localization news, the restarted localization news, and maybe the first one to appear on YouTube. So, thank you for listening. Thank you for watching make sure you follow the localization podcast, subscribe and all those nice things that you can do on your Spotify and Apple podcasts and on YouTube. And I'll be most likely back in the next week with new set of articles. And until then, goodbye. (coughs)